Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Website design is a very personal form of self-expression, and this is something that Anthony Casalina knows better than most. 15 years ago in his dorm room, he began building a platform to host his own website. I'm Scarlett Fu with Bloomberg News, and in this episode, we talk with Squarespace's founder and CEO about how his passion for blogging turned into an innovative solution to the problem of self-expression and how it helps people achieve their own entrepreneurial success. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, I just want to make a quick note here to begin with uh, my connection to Squarespace because I'm a big hockey fan. I try to go to a couple of New York Rangers games every season. And the connection to Anthony is that Squarespace has a prominent ad on the rink board at Madison Square Garden. And when I can't make it to the garden, I watch the games at home and I stay and watch the in-between period player interviews, which take place in the Squarespace studio. Yep. And I also spend a lot of time driving my own kids to their sports practices. And to kill the time, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And my favorite podcast is 99% Invisible. And one of the sponsors there is Squarespace once again. So when I add it all up, hearing about and seeing Squarespace takes up a lot of my daily time. It's become a big part of my day. And it all culminates in this conversation today with Anthony. So. Great to have you here, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Let's go back in time a little bit here to how you came to form this company that designs websites. It actually came out of a need because you did not like the existing options out there. So let's start there. Sure. So in the in the, the ancient history, so in the in the very beginning, um, and this was in 2003, uh, I wanted to make a website for myself and uh, was looking at what was out there, and I. I kind of noticed two things. One was that there was not a uh, all-in-one solution. So I had to, to put up a website that included a page, a blog, a photo gallery. Um, you know, I was putting together different pieces of software, installing those on a hosted system, maintaining the servers, um, running my own analytics software, all that. And I, I really didn't like um, that way of doing things. And secondly, um, I'm a big kind of design person, and uh, I wanted my site to look good. And I realized that you know I was going to put this site out there, and and how it looked, how it represented my ideas, were going to be how a lot of people perceived me and perceived my ideas. And I, I was just really frustrated that not a lot of services out there seemed to focus on design. So I started Squarespace for myself um, because I wanted those two things. And then you know quickly realized um, perhaps more people uh, cared about those two things. Perhaps <laughs> others would like perhaps it too. Perhaps others might like this. So you, you wanted a website, you wanted to form a website. Why? Were you, did you already have a company in mind or what were you putting out there for everyone? You, you know, what's funny about it is it, this was at a time when blogging was new. Um, and I remember having to explain to people like what a blog was. And I, I, wanted to, uh, I wanted to make a blog for myself. And also I, I worked on these different, I've been a programmer since I was a kid. And so I like, had all these little projects I was working on. I wanted to put them on a website. And I don't know why, I just kind of put them out there. Um, and the irony of it is all that I'm like the world's worst blogger. I think I wrote like two blog entries and then <laughs> just kept working on Squarespace and never went back to it. Um, but yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it was that. Innovation is about solving problems. We like to say that there's a problem being fixed here. You say, or you told me that you were solving the problem of self-expression. Mm -hmm. Explain what that means. Yeah, I mean, what started is something kind of just for myself, which is like, can I put myself online? Does it look good? Is this easy? Is this something I want to update? Um, you just quickly realized that other people had this problem. And yeah, I mentioned, I mentioned blogging. Um, this was at a time on the internet when I think for most people, uh, making a website or putting something online seemed kind of hard. Uh, but blogging was something that seemed kind of easy. Like I can type into a box and do this, and anyone can make a blog, and blogger's easy to use. And so we really kind of anchored, uh, anchored the company around blogging in the early days and just very quickly realized that um, people were creating blogs for all kinds of reasons. They were creating websites for all kinds of reasons. And you know, it became a kind of interesting problem. Like, how many kinds of sites can you make on Squarespace? You know, can it be a, if I want to put a portfolio online, or a small business website, or I'm an author, or I'm a blogger? Like, so we were just kind of really into the, the technical side mm -hmm. of, of solving that. Yeah, the different formats that were available. So as a result, your customer base really veers towards independent, creative, almost artistic type people or businesses. 
How did you figure out that target or did it kind of happen accidentally? And I'm sure it creates specific opportunities and yeah. risks as well. So we are generally known for you know having a very creative uh, user base, but I'd actually say a long time ago in the beginning, it, it wasn't formed exactly like that. I mean, I cared about design, so I think it was naturally you know something that people who cared about design were more kind of into. Mm -hmm. um, but really, the transformation and the the way to get into that audience came in. We relaunched the platform in 2012 or so, um, and I started rewriting it in 2010 with a small group of people. And from uh, from then, it was it was actually very intentional to target portfolios. Uh, we had a lot of people on the platform that were close to the company who were photographers. Uh, a lot worked for Squarespace. And you know, at the time when the web was changing, we thought, OK, portfolios are really hard to do visually. Um, and the, the, the designs behind those can be used for a variety of things. For instance, you, know, you have a web page that's got images and it's scrolling by. Um, that could be a portfolio, but it could also be a coffee shop. Um, with, with that kind of presentation. So we said, if we can solve the websites that are hardest to make the most visually difficult, mm -hmm. we can solve that for other people and apply those techniques elsewhere. In addition, um, we had a lot of people building sites on the platform, and we were creative creatives ourselves. A lot of the people in the company use Squarespace for their portfolios. And it's a really natural target in a way, because if you think about who's making websites for people, a lot of those people who are working in agencies, working as web designers, are who everyone goes to when they're like, hey, how do I make a website? And if they're overworked, they probably don't have time to make a site for someone themselves. But you know, if we've tapped into their sensibilities, they'll say, hey, maybe you should just try Squarespace out. So are you meant to bypass those, those experts, for instance, and is more DIY? So we have a DIY target, which do-it-yourself. So basically, um, people come to the site, they sign up, they can create the site themselves. It definitely doesn't require an expert. Mm -hmm. That being said, we do have a community of people we call Circle, um, who are people who build sites for other people. Um, and so we, we, we target both, but the, the, the marketing is around a DIY tool. So there's a certain seasonality to your business. Uh, let's say that I wanted to start a site. What are, why are the odds higher that I would want to launch www.scarletfood.com in the first quarter than any other part of the year? So we do have a bit of seasonality to the, to the, uh, to the platform um, for reasons that I mean, we have like working theories on why it might be the case, but I don't really know. Uh, <laughs> like, why do more people start websites in January, February? I don't know. Like, some kind of New Year's resolution thing, or like just people don't want to do it in December. You're like home for the holiday. It's like, how many like things are you really launching in December? Generally, just wait till January. Um, so there's a bit of seasonality around there, and we also see a little bit of seasonality um, pick back up after the summer. So September, mm -hmm. and, and again, I think it's just like New Year's back to school mentality. We we don't. I have a better explanation for it. <laughs> but you're able to plan what you're launching, new tools, for instance, maybe a month or two before you expect a, a new stream of customers to come online. You know, I, I would say that it doesn't affect our product release cycles as much, it, a little bit, depending on what we're releasing. For instance, we're not going to release a lot of changes to the commerce platform in, Nove you know, in November, December, when it's everyone's high season. Mm -hmm. um, we just kind of wait until January to put a lot of those things out while in Q4 we're focused on stability. Um, it changes how we advertise. So it changes the waves in which, we, you know, if we know there's going to be a lot of activity around January, we might build up in Q4, make sure in Q1 we've got, you know, a really strong uh, campaign launched. And yeah, so we, we build around it a little bit. But, um, you know, for products and whatnot, it, it generally, for better or worse, we just kind of have to launch them when they're ready. So how much would Squarespace charge me for scarletfood.com? I mean, has that changed a lot during the, the time of the company? Is there um, a one-size-fits-all pricing? Does it matter if I get a billion visitors a month or five visitors a month? Yeah, so there's right now, ever since we introduced a, a commerce platform, um, there's basically four plan levels, and it's differentiated based on features and if you're using commerce or not. Um, and it's going to range between 10 and 40 bucks a month, uh, roughly. So it's and like rent, basically. It's like rent, okay. exactly. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're getting one visitor or a million visitors. Mm -hmm. So it's the same price uh, uh, based on traffic. What happens if I want to branch out and I decide that I have this great website, I blog once in a mm -hmm. while, and I want to sell hockey jerseys? Mm -hmm. How? What kind of tools do you provide to help with that or to help me grow my business further? Yeah. So. A long time ago, you know, I was mentioning kind of this 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 all-in-one idea, which is why I started it, right? That I wanted page building software and gallery software and blogging software in one place. 
So we still have an all-in-one approach these days. It's just around broader sets of things. You're mm -hmm. talking about selling. So when we think about our future and we think about where we're going, we think about three primary areas. We think about presence, which is could you get your website? We think, and do you get your domain on it? We think around commerce. Um, so can I sell online? Can I accept donations? Can I do you know, transact with my customers in multiple ways? And we think about marketing tools, and that's like things like uh, can I send my customers an email? We have an email uh, product that just went live um, in early access in June, and uh, we'll be uh, out of beta and everything by the end of this year. Um, so yeah, uh, you can you can transact on the platform. I, I think the commerce. How we're oriented with commerce is, you know, it started with simple commerce as an add-on. You know, I'm a restaurant. Can I sell gift cards? Can I sell T-shirts? I'm a band. Can I sell merchandise? Um, and what we're really starting to do is just really diversify that commerce platform and say, okay, um, can I get a put up a paywall? What about bookings? Mm -hmm. You know, and we're thinking about uh, the 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 different ways people transact online outside of just e-commerce and 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 providing solutions to them. What if I decide content is what I'm really focused on, but I start posting really offensive material, <laughs> and there's a petition circulating that's gotten tens of thousands of signatures demanding yeah. that you remove me from the Squarespace platform. Yeah. And I guess what I'm getting at is what is acceptable content versus stuff that yeah. you just won't tolerate, even though I can say, hey, I'm protected by the First Amendment. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's not your plan, right? No, mm, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I, I just want to know, so yeah. we can flag it. Um, the. <laughs> No, I mean, look, we as a platform are a little bit lucky in that we've been spared kind of the worst of the stuff that's happening. Because, I mean, Squarespace is a, it's a tool for, to help people succeed you know, online and help them with their, their entrepreneurial success. Um, and that's why we do things like the Presence Platform, the Commerce Platform, and all, and all that. And in addition, you know, it's a paid service. So we are spared like the worst of the, you know, Crazy crap that appears online when you've got you know a free platform out there. You know, generally, if I'm asking you for your credit card, you're not going to just pay for Squarespace with your real name and so then there's a real issue death there. threats. Yeah, there, there, there's a there's a real there's a real person there. You know, that said, um, you know, our policies have had to evolve over time with respect to um, how we approach dangerous content on the platform. And I think us and you know a lot of the other tech companies are kind of really learning and reshaping what we're doing to figure out you know, what we find to be acceptable use. Mm -hmm. uh, and in a few cases, we've had to uh, make a decision to remove some people from the platform that didn't align with uh, some of our values. And look, we're, we're a business. We're not the government. And um, you know, we're not going to spend a huge amount of time and effort defending stuff that isn't why we started the platform anyway. And one of those people that was removed was Richard Spencer. You yeah. took him off the platform in August of 2017. Yep. What was his response? <laughs> um, that was one of the people removed. For those of you who don't know, that's one of the um, names mentioned a lot in connection with the uh, Charlottesville incident. Um, and so my concern with removing him was that, you know, He's just going to recreate that site somewhere else in 24 hours and use the I got kicked off victim card to play, to, to really amplify a message that's going to exist there anyway. Um, Squarespace is different uh, in a lot of ways than the other, platform, the other big platforms because we don't, we don't control distribution. It's not like you know, you're posting onto uh, Facebook and then Facebook decides whether it reaches a million people or one mm -hmm. person. We're kind of like the paper company and people write bad things on paper sometimes. One um, size fits all. One visitor yeah, or hundred Yeah, or a hundred visitors. visitors. Yeah. Um, and so uh, this is kind of weird. Uh, so we kicked him off, and within 24 hours, his site appeared somewhere else. Great. Um, and uh, yeah, he was pretty. Uh, he's actually pretty nice about the whole thing. He even weird. complimented you guys at one point, right? I, it, it was bizarre. Um, you know, <laughs> he was on some like weird alt right thing the next day. And uh, people asked about like, oh, kick Squarespace off it. You kicked off Squarespace, and he's like, he was he was kind of like he thought it was a real shame. He he <laughs> liked what you offered. He liked the design of the websites. I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> um, what did you learn? What have you learned? And what are you learning about privacy, data protection, these last few months? I mean, what's the takeaway for you? Yeah, well, like all the large tech companies, um, we uh, you know the GDPR. Uh, rules or something that we have to uh, implement. You know, while it's sometimes tough inside a company when you know you're working on the product, you want to work on product features and things that 
you know, the users are seeing and you know, the next commerce feature and all that. Um, I actually think that the GDPR uh, regulations, while a little difficult for us to implement, um, are actually quite good. I mean, like I as a consumer kind of kind of want that. Um, I want if you know I ask a, a, a company to remove uh, my content that it that it goes away. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a uh, that's something we do. Um, generally, I mean, Squarespace is uh, it's not affected by that in the same way like a Facebook or a Twitter might be affected by that because. <laughs> You know, generally you're putting content on Squarespace to publish it to the world, so we don't have a lot of like secret content or private content on the platform. There is some behind password protected um, fields, but yeah, it's uh, you're putting it out there to put it live. And the other personal information we have on you is really whatever you, your address is for billing purposes, and mm -hmm. you know that's why we have that. Um, so yeah, I mean we're, we're, we're implementing it. I think those rules are good, and uh, yeah, that's kind of how we've engaged with it. And you're not monetizing the the data that you do have on the customers that you do have. You're not selling it in any other way. No, no, absolutely not. Um, so I mean, in Squarespace, well, one, you're generally publishing your, your site to other people. And I guess we would have statistics across like all the sites, which mm -hmm. are like, maybe we could pull out browser trends or things like that, which we might publish and I mean, it wouldn't be personally identifiable in any way. But no, we're not, we don't sell any data or anything like that. All right, so let's talk about your management philosophy because um, you went from a one-man show in your dorm room of University of Maryland to building mm -hmm. a team and you had to delegate responsibility. You had to become a manager, learn to how to become a manager. Yeah. When Squarespace started, you were doing everything <clears throat> yourself. And at some point, you must have realized this, this can't go on. This is unsustainable. Yeah. What was that aha moment that made you say, okay, I've got I've to branch out. I've got to hire people. Yeah, so in the early days of Squarespace, I did, I did a lot of myself, probably... Uh, too much myself, and that uh, impacted my uh, health in various ways. Um, but it it became at a point where, and there were good parts about that too. I, I I think it was good because you know I would set up the servers and run the infrastructure and write the marketing things and run the AdWords accounts and do the coding. And, and you were make in school the at the same time. In the beginning, I was okay. yeah, because I launched it in um it launched in '04. I graduated in '05, uh, so I was doing a lot. I was doing a lot myself. I think at some point. I, rem I don't remember exactly when it was, and I had this mentality of like, I think you fall back to, I think sometimes it's easy to fall back on your strengths when you want to solve a problem. So I was an engineer, and I was just like, you know, I'm going to engineer my way out of the scaling problem. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, right? Like, it sounds ridiculous, but like, you know, it was easier like for Matt me. Like Matt Damon in The Martian. Like Matt Damon in The Martian. <laughs> um, but it was easier for, it's easier for me to, to sit there and, and write more code and solve things than it was for me to like, wake up one day and try and figure out like, how do I hire people? I don't have a network, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know how to like interview anybody. I, I you know, it mm -hmm. was just like, so I kept falling back on that weakness and I think, or on that strength. And I think that one of the, the situations I ended up getting in, it's like, I remember just setting even like really basic goals for myself. Like I was like, I wanna have this feature out in two months and I'm coding it myself or whatever. And, and like, you, you, like two months would pass, I'm like, what happened here? Well, I did my taxes, I answered all the support, <laughs> like I incorporated this thing, I patched all this crap, like I didn't get anywhere. Right. And you're like a hamster in a yeah, wheel. Yeah, I'm in a hamster in a wheel. I'm still a hamster in a wheel. But like the, uh, <laughs> I haven't figured that one out yet. Um, but yeah, I mean, just, 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 I realized I wasn't making progress. And so um, I decided to change that and I joined up with some people and we, uh, we, we, we started that. Uh, journey towards, uh, yeah, I guess you, you say I had to learn to become a manager. Yeah, that 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 took a while. What was the first thing that you delegated? The first, yeah, well, the first thing I started to delegate was actually stuff around um, customer support. Mm -hmm. So I hired part-time support people uh, to help me, you know, answer the questions. And then the second thing was actually around some of the template designs. I want, I always kind of knew that. Um, I wanted to engage with a number of different creative personalities in order to like get a variety of templates and views represented. On, excuse me, views represented on the platform. So it was actually those two things. So what what can you not delegate? Because once you start, it, it kind of feeds on itself, right? You can hire a team, you can get someone yeah. on customer service, you can do you can bring in engineers to help code, or can everything be delegated? I mean, I what, what's the thing that you need to preserve for yourself? You definitely can't delegate the mission or the vision, right? I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Um, I don't think, I think there are certain aspects of, I don't think you can delegate the, the, the DNA. 
and the building of the DNA. I think that that's up to you to figure out who's in and who's out and, and what configuration uh, people are in. Um, I don't think there's anyone on your team that can just figure that out for you. You've got to pick that. Um, and I think that depending on how you uh, engage with those things, your company will have different kinds of output. And the way I spend my time um, from, from day to day and week to week now is trying to spend like it on things where I'm uniquely, um, hopefully, <laughs> um, either good or I can lend a perspective to something that other people in the company might not have. Like I have, you know, uh, like these weekly product reviews now, which are some of my best uh, time spent every week. And, you know, I have a particular viewpoint on the way the product should be and the way the details should go. And I'm responsible for keeping these diverse groups coherent mm -hmm. um, and making sure that it reaches a, a, a final result. Mm -hmm. so. And making sure that it's in line with, with your vision from, from beginning to end. Yeah, and the mission. And to make sure that those things evolve over time, right? I mean, you know, while a lot of our values are the same as when we started, um, you know, we started as a blogging platform, right? And we're much more in the blogging platform right now. So at various junctures, it's got to be okay to say, okay, we're going to do, do more. That's, that's it. You, our ambition can evolve. So. Something you spend a lot of time thinking about is operating within limitations. And this could mm -hmm. be from a design perspective, but I wanted to talk about it from a financial perspective. Mm -hmm. um, you disagreed with venture capitalists who encourage people to raise as much money as they possibly can because you know their service or their product is really in the zeitgeist or financing is cheap. There's a lot of money yeah. swarming around looking for a home. Why is that? Why should you hold off on raising as much money as you can? So I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer here, but I can answer it for, 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 from for, your perspective. for my business. Yeah. Because there's certainly other businesses that are very capital-intensive up front, right? And you're going to have a burn rate, and you're going to need a runway, and you definitely don't want to operate out of a situation where you, know, you don't know if you're going to evaporate in three months because you didn't raise enough money. Now, that being said, um, you know, we were, I, try, I operated the business to essentially cash flow break even from the very beginning. Um, and so I didn't really need to raise, in my view, uh, you know, outside, outside capital. And for a while, it was just me running it. And so you know, it was able to you know, reach a level where generating, always generating a good amount of money. I also think that that instilled a level of kind of financial discipline on the company where I think if I had raised you know, millions and millions of dollars, I would have probably felt the need to spend it. Otherwise, why would I have raised it? And I'm not sure I could have done that very well. And so I think that that kind of, that factor of kind of, you know, make money, spend money, and keep it to break even was, was really good for this. Also, I mean, if you don't know what you're going to do with the money, why would you suffer the dilution? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't add up to me. Um, and so when we have raised money, it's been for very specific reasons. Um, and, and that's just kind of how we've operated. So but, you can say general working capital, but you knew exactly where that money was going to. Now, you're profitable. You said that you're yep. break-even from, from day one. Yep, why stay private? Why, why not tap the public markets? So yeah, we're a late-stage private company at this point. Um, you know, we're bigger than some of our competitors when, when they decided to go public. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that you know, we, we take steps internally to ensure that if and when we ever would want to be a public company, that, you know, that we can do that. Um, but really, we haven't we haven't needed to, and we're just sort of taking our time to make sure that you know if and when we decide to do that, it's a it's a smooth um, smooth transition. And when you talk about your competitors, as they include Wix or GoDaddy, um, wouldn't going public be the ultimate expression of operating within limitations? You've got shareholders telling you what you can and can't do. You've mm -hmm. got the threat of activist investors. I mean, there's a discipline there. Yeah, sounds lovely. Um, the, uh, I don't know why I would not want to do that. Um, the, uh, no, 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 no. I mean, again, as as part of as part of us operating uh, the way we're operating, um, and and kind of our internal planning, we do conduct ourselves in a lot of ways like a public company would. And I actually, I've actually found that stuff to be kind of valuable. I mean, again, if you if you're in my position, sort of like. Well, there's benefits to being public. You know, your your stock is liquid. You've got RSUs. Um, people can you know access that you know um, the value of their shares when they vest. Um, your valuation. I mean, you 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 operate a little bit as a discount as a pub as a private company versus mm -hmm. a public company in terms of share value, just because you know the shares are liquid, so there's just less or mm -hmm. there's less of a market for them. Um, 
But I, I, what I found is that, yeah, when, internally when we start to like do our thing where we look at the company like an analyst would look at the company, I think that it does a, a, a kind of a great thing internally. I mean, like you could be spending a lot on uh, your R&D and I could be investing along the way and, you know, at certain juncture points, you kind of take a look at it and you go, boom, I just doubled my R&D spend. Did I really double my output? Mm-hmm. And it starts like conversations internally where, you know, if, if somebody's being really short-term focused and they want a result in the quarter right away, then I think that's pretty unhealthy. But I think that some of those questions an analyst could ask are incredibly valid about the operations of, of your business. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it would be, you know, obviously validating to be a public company because it's, it's you know, uh, it's an amazing step. Um, but it's a, to me, it's a financial event. And, you know, uh, it's just one step along along the way. Um, no pressure yeah. from your investors to, to do so? No. Um, you know, the market is such right now that, you know, if early stage uh, investors needed to get liquidity, they could easily get liquidity from a lot of uh, later stage private investors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You say that there's still a lot more you want to do. You start off as a blogging site, mm-hmm. then you're helping businesses grow, um, mm-hmm. offering them tools. You're focusing now on helping customers sell their products through their sites. And mm-hmm. that means e-commerce, international yep. growth. Yep. Inevitably, that brings up the behemoth, which is Amazon, mm-hmm. and, and going up against an Amazon. So talk a little bit about that challenge. Yeah, from a commerce perspective, I guess you could, you know, from an e-commerce perspective, I suppose that there's something there. But I would think that the Squarespace platform would be kind of complementary in the sense that if you were using Squarespace or one of our competitors to have an independent commerce site, you could also, uh, Amazon has integrations where your products can also exist within their marketplace. And further, mm-hmm. um, if you're a small company, a uh, small brand trying to grow, I think you're trying to differentiate based on your story. And um, I think Squarespace can help people tell their story and, and, and grow that way. Um, so I, I don't really see it in competition as much with, with Amazon. Um, and in addition, you know, e-commerce is just one aspect of commerce online, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you look at our customer base. You've got, um, you've got people selling goods. You've got people selling digital goods. You've got subscriptions. You've got bookings engines. You've got um, paywalls. You've got all these different ways to transact that apply to our customer base that are really you know, not something Amazon does. What about apps, the rise of apps? Mm-hmm. Is that um, a competition for you, or how does that affect what you do? Does a business need a dedicated website if you can, they can just build a, an app? Yeah, so I, I've had a particular stance on this uh, for a long time, which is that I, I don't believe that uh, most of the company and most of the customers of our service should have an app as well as uh, their website for deploying content for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, I don't know how you guys use your phones, but I don't really generally like installing like an app for every single website I visit. That would be sort of weird. Um, you know, I have a couple concentrated apps that are around particular services. So, you know, I might do a couple top news sites or Amazon mm-hmm. or things like that. Um, so I'm really like an, an app for a platform makes sense to me, mm-hmm. not for not for an individual website. Uh, I don't think consumers are installing apps like that. Um, I don't think that's a great way to browse content. Linking doesn't work. Like, there's a lot of reasons. To so not. we're past peak app then. I think for our kind of customers, I think that there's specialized reasons why you might want an app around something you're doing, but I don't think it replaces a website, no. Hmm. But you don't have any plans to expand into apps or doing anything like that. It's it's still a website-based platform. Yeah, exactly. We don't have any plans to make a uh, app building thing so that you can, you know, your content makes an app. And I think there's actually, um, I think that's been tried a little bit, and mm-hmm. I think that people have run into some issues with the App Store and Apple uh <laughs> not wanting people to do that. Mm. Uh, so no, there are no plans. And the economics do also don't favor the small guy. Apple and Google taking a big cut as well. Yeah, I mean, I you know, there's a lot of ways to, 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 to do an app. Um, if they were, I guess if it was a for pay thing, yeah, that would be not so great. So we mentioned that you founded the company in your dorm room at University of Maryland. Um, you're from Maryland originally, mm-hmm. from Northern Maryland. Why base Squarespace in New York? Why not in Maryland, where you grew up, mm-hmm. or, or Silicon Valley, for that matter? Why, why does New York make sense for you? So I, I'd, be, I'd be partially lying if I didn't admit it, admit it was for personal reasons. Um, I've always loved New York. Uh, ever since I visited New York, I mean, there's like a particular energy and creative spirit here that is just absolutely incredible. Um, that you don't find elsewhere. And I think that 
what's been amazing about basing Squarespace here is that that kind of is in the DNA of the company. I mean, I think that we're a, a unique tech company in the sense that we really do balance uh, creative and engineering in a way that is, is really different than others. In addition, um, a lot of our customers are here, right? A lot of the entrepreneurs, the musicians, the artists, you know, I mean, all the industries that Squarespace wants to service are in New York. So it, 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 it's, it's kind of good to be around that DNA and part of it. I think that it's also given us access to a particular pool of design talent that I'm not sure existed mm -hmm. in, in other markets. And, you know, look, in the early years, it was more difficult to do the engineering hiring here and all that because there were less, um, I think there's less of that talent set here. But I think it actually has always sort of been here. It's just been in banks or in different forms. And, you know, the, the tech community has evolved a lot here. And um, I think that's amazing for ourselves and everyone else in the tech community. Um, and it's it's great. I mean, you can be in New York as a as an engineer now, and you can work for some of the biggest tech companies on the planet in a remote office, or you can work at a startup, or you can work kind of anywhere in between. And uh, we're somewhere in between. So the New York tech scene has grown up, it's evolved, and yeah. you're able to tap that talent effectively. Let's go back to where I started, which was advertising. Yeah. Um, how often do people get you confused with Square or Foursquare? <laughs> It depends on the year. Um, <laughs> that has changed over time. Uh, look, I mean, these days, sometimes we, we do get mixed up with Square a little bit, especially now that like we both do commerce. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't know the solve for that one. Well, for, for Square less these days. More advertising, certainly. More advertising. We'll definitely try and do that. <laughs> well, you've become very visible of late with yeah. sponsorships, with branding. Uh, I yeah. mentioned the partnership with Madison Square Garden. Yep. You also sponsored the New York Knicks' jersey, right? Yep, through the Madison Square Garden sponsorship, exactly. And you're sponsoring podcasts. Yeah. Talk a little bit about why you've been so uh, out front in sponsoring podcasts. What, why this particular medium, and how do you measure its effectiveness? Yeah, podcast was a great, um, a great one for us. I don't know when our first podcast ad was, but it was probably like almost a decade ago at this point, which is crazy. And it was, we were there very early on um, in that medium. And um, what's been great about it is, especially back then, it was really under the radar for, for a, a lot of companies. A lot of big advertisers didn't understand what podcasts were, or how to buy on them or anything else. So mm -hmm. we were very kind of guerrilla in our approach to it at the time. And so we would go out there and you know, go to a show host and be like, hey, can we you know, work on a deal, something, something. And you know, they would oftentimes say yes. We would form a relationship with the show host so that they understood the product. and. We could work with them on how they talked about the product. And, you know, I think, it, you know, a combination of those things was just, it really resonated with audiences. I mean, people fall in love with the podcast and the podcast hosts that they're, they're into and they want to support their shows and they like that Squarespace is helping support uh, their show. And, you know, there's just an authentic, authentic thing that rings true there. Um, you also asked about attribution. So uh, depending on... Uh, where we're marketing, and we market across every channel on the planet, basically, almost. Um, you know, we'll we'll try and uh, we'll try and measure it in a lot of ways, like post checkout surveys, coupons, mm -hmm. um, various things to try and get a, a read on um, on uh, how things are doing. And you also advertise in the Super Bowl as well, right? In 2014, there was a John Malkovich ad. We have advertised in the Super Bowl five times. Um, so last year's Canaries. We did something with him, and then the year before that was John Malkovich, which was a really fun one, which we won an Emmy for, which was kind of cool. Of course, for a, a company that, that dabbles with well, design or that masters groups, in design. Yeah, yeah it makes well, a lot of it sense. Was, it was really cool for us because, I mean, you know, we work with a lot of small creative firms, and we have a lot of uh, creative talent in-house, too. And so, um, you know, that collaboration produced that result. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really cool. And how much more are you going to be spending in, in the coming year? Do you figure that out in advance, or is it kind of dependent on the feedback that you get from people? You know, it, it, we figure it out in advance, but it's, of course, dependent on the feedback. I mean, like, if we were, you know, we'll, we'll spend in, you know, ad channels up until we see certain levels of diminishing returns, and then we'll pull back and things mm -hmm. like that. And, 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 and certain kinds of advertising is more, is more brand building in long term than it is like, hey, we're measuring the result of that thing on this one date. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's a combination of those factors that depends, uh, that, that, that determines what we'll spend. But you know, we'll spend over $100 million next year on advertising. 
Before I turn things over to the audience and open it up, I wanted to ask one final question about diversity. Mm -hmm. um, how are you tracking your hiring and, and your representation of women, of minorities, and making sure that you're not falling behind there? Yeah, so I think as a company grows, you, you can invest in this more and more, and I don't think that uh, we have this right right now. Uh, earlier this year, we hired a director of uh, DNI, Diversity and Inclusion, who can um, spend time with a number of different groups inside the company to try and figure out you know, how we're doing there and keep this uh, in people's minds. Um, you know, we do a lot of different things to attempt to remove bias from the, from the hiring process. Frankly, uh, we did a lot with um, internal leveling to just get normalization around pay scales in the company, which lets us then have even the language to talk about like how, how, how we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and so I think we're, we're somewhere along, I would say the beginning of that journey, not towards the end of it. All right, a work in progress then. Let's yeah. open things up to the audience. Uh, raise your hand if you have a question. We'll start in the middle here. Uh, gentleman <laughs> over here in the second row. Yeah, yeah thank you. Where we're going to get oh, a microphone over to yeah. you so you don't have to shout. Cool. There you go. Yeah. Hi. Thanks. Hi. So I'm Dick Reisman. I'm doing some work in monetizing content. And it would seem, given your focus on creative content, mm -hmm. that that's sort of a central question. And I'm curious what you're doing in terms of subscriptions, memberships, Patreon-style models, um, is that something that you see yourself building, or do you just work with other companies that are providing those services, and where do you see it going in terms of better models? Yeah, so I, I, can't, I can't get too far into the details of our roadmap, but suffice to say, you know, when I think about the future of commerce on our platform, it is not just e-commerce. So a lot of the things you said are of interest to me, um, we're still kind of getting together how we plan on going through that. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't get too far into our roadmap, but I think there's a lot of interesting things going on. I think you mentioned a lot of those models that are, go are gonna make some sense for, for companies moving forward. In other words, watch this space. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Next. Back there, please. How you doing? So Hi. I noticed that you said that you're going to get more into e-commerce. So my thing is um, creating a universal platform as opposed to all-in-one where um, competing with a company like Amazon where a platform on Squarespace can now have uh, products integrate uh, through an API to the platform and then sell product as opposed to um, getting an affiliated marketing license to now take the user to the um, product site for them to buy there. Mm -hmm. You guys get into that or no? Uh, what, what was so, the question? So, for instance, would you guys be able to uh, allow for um, API access? To API the... access to the platform on Squarespace to allow products to be bought on Squarespace from another um, platform, so you can have like differentiated areas and where um, yeah. the product is coming from. Yeah. So, as as our commerce product has evolved, uh, one of the things that was a really highly requested feature was API access specifically to the commerce platform, and we have rolled out and or are rolling out. Uh, orders and inventory APIs, which would enable you know a third party to do exactly what you're describing. We wouldn't probably integrate with a, a the marketplace ourselves, but you could write something that if you were a Squarespace customer, you could have access to their um, to their to their inventory. So, yeah. in the back row over here. Thank you. Hi, I'm Andrea Madho, co-founder and CEO of Lab One Four One, or a fashion tech startup. And so I want to ask you as a founder, you talked a little bit about raising money and mm -hmm. um, dilution. Mm -hmm. I have this 51% number that flashes constantly because I feel <laughs> like I don't own my company after that. Uh -huh. um, and I've been talking about dil uh, raising money. Is, it's a racket. It's like yeah. a Ponzi scheme where you're constantly being asked <laughs> about your next round. Yeah. It is. Um, <laughs> so... I would like you to maybe talk about that as a founder and that yeah. whole 51% dilution, lack of control, if it's something you think about or not. Well, I don't. I, the first thing I would react to is I don't understand why um, the percentage of ownership structure has to be conflated with control. So you have lots of examples out there of public companies that are controlled because of uh, a super voting share class. Uh, Facebook's a prime okay. example of that. Um, you can also structure it such that you have board control, but maybe not, you know, other kinds of controls. Anytime you're accepting an investor, an investment from an investor, they're going to need certain kinds of controls. Otherwise, you could just make your salary all the money in the company, and that wouldn't really be fair. Uh, that's kind of against the terms of the investment. But I think there's creative ways to split the notion of control with the percentage ownership. 
So um, I'm not a lawyer. I don't, I don't know. But you might look into some of that stuff. So. But do you agree with the idea that once you hit 51%, you, know, you, you lose everything? No. I think that, it, again, prime example, uh, you can negotiate different rights on those preferred shares. You can negotiate super voting shares. You can do all kinds of things. Um, it's not that uh, you'll get those things necessarily, but they're, they're certainly out there. And, but the market frowns upon that. Investors often, I mean, we at Bloomberg always write, oh, well, you know, Mark Zuckerberg controls all the voting shares. So that, that's seen as a knock against the company. Well, I mean, it's funny because we're at Bloomberg. <laughs> it's a controlled company. Um, but, but we're not public at all. We're not public. And I think a great thing for the we're company. We're not public. I'm a huge fan. Um, so not public. <laughs> not public. Um, well, neither is uh, you know a private you know a private tech startup. But you know we're we're, we're going there. Look, I think there can be parameters on it that 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 make some sense. I certainly think that you know if you own one share in the company and you control the entire destiny of it, that probably doesn't work. But I think if you, you know, control 40% of the company, and I don't know, I mean, it, the shares can sunset, they can be, you know, There's transfer restrictions. There's lots of parameters that go into those kinds of shares, some of which are viewed rather unfavorably, mm -hmm. some of which people are willing to digest. And, you know, that's that. I mean, I think that, you know, yeah. All right, sounds good. Uh, over here, please. Hi there. Uh, Hi. You briefly mentioned your competitors, and I was wondering, how do you compare yourself in terms of um, at what point in your company do you do you feel like you've reached this this point of success, and and how do you see yourself staying at that level in the future? Yeah, it's really interesting. You said, you know, what level did you think you reached the point of success, and I'm sort of like, did we? Um, <laughs> which You're sounds which, which sounds crazy, but like. I, I really I really don't feel like we've won. Like I mean, we haven't. Some of our competitors have, you know, more customers. They're certain. Some of them are certainly aggressive. Some of them are beating us out in certain international markets. Sometimes they pull ahead on a feature and we'll fall behind on the feature, um, depending on where we are in our product life cycle. So I don't I don't think we won. Um, and yeah, I, I I I don't know. I mean, at some point, I, I guess I did have to, you know. After you do this for forever, like I mean, ten years ago, I you know, especially being in New York, you'd, I'd be out or something. You introduce yourself to something like, oh, what do you do? I'd be like, I used to say I'm just a programmer because I don't want to deal with the question. And then you know, it's like, oh, I have a site, I have a company called Squarespace. And it's funny over the years, it's like, oh, somebody goes, oh, I've heard of it, like one in never, one in fifty times, one in twenty times, mm -hmm. most of the time, a lot of the time, and now it's sort of like. I don't even know what to say. They're like, what are you doing? Like, oh, I have a company called Square. They're like, of course. I'm like, not of course. I don't know. Five years ago, it wasn't of course. New York Knicks, come like, on. I don't know. <laughs> so I don't know. It's funny It's funny how the perception changes over the years. But it doesn't really change how I um, you know, think about the company and think about winning. I mean, I, I, I just want us to be, you know, the. Like, I don't think competitors like beat each other. Like, I don't think like Coke beats Pepsi and then it's gone, or Pepsi beats Coke and then it's gone. Um, these are just different things. I, I, I remain more worried about our own internal execution than I am about you know how any particular competitor is doing. Am I aware of how they're doing? Sure, but like I don't. I try not to spend all my time on that. We had a question over here, a gentleman in a baseball hat. Yeah. You just said you were a programmer. Mm. What is your thought on the no code, low code movement? The, the what? The no code low or code low code mo movement. movement? Since you're a programmer. What's no code, low code? Can you explain? As I understand, so correct me if I'm wrong, but like it, it's basically uh, a lot of platforms out there that let you create apps or business processes without actually having to like write Java or JavaScript, right? Yeah, so. That's similar to, to uh, Squarespace. Squarespace. In a so, way. Correct. Yeah, in a way. Create a website without really coding HTML or yeah. CSS or even knowing For sure, it. for sure. Um, I think it can have its applications. I am not familiar in a consumer space of where it makes a ton of sense. I think there's some pretty successful you know, enterprise applications of that, which have pretty sophisticated platforms, but are automating business processes with, with you know, a low-code or a no-code environment. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen it apply to consumers particularly yet, because 
generally what happens is when you open up when you open up a platform and it can kind of you can make any app with it you want it generally means that you have an interface on that like it's very hard to tailor the interface to that process in a way that consumers need so if i like made a blogging platform in a low code environment it probably wouldn't be as good as the blogging platform we create when we know it's a blogging platform from day one and we are in every detail of code um, and so it's just it's just a level of polish which with which you want to get things at Maybe those environments will eventually get there, um, but I, I just haven't seen like great results um, in my space. But I certainly don't know everything that's going on. Before I forget, how did you come up with the name Squarespace? Yeah, everyone asked that. Um, so I wanted something that was easy to say that I could get the com.net and .org for because they were unregistered because I didn't have any money. <laughs> And so they, I just, no, they weren't registered. They had zero Google results, right? Uh -huh. It was amazing. And uh, I don't know, I, there were two things. It was like Squarespace, like I guess screens were more square back at the time, and it was like your space within the screen, so that kind of worked. And then I also thought that um, I could like make a really simple logo for it or something. Like this was in my head, like I might make some kind of square thing. And, like the <laughs> irony of that is like, I don't even know if I could draw our interlocking S logo from memory right now. Um, so. That was a funny twist, but yeah, it's kind of that. Did you have a backup name in mind if Squarespace was taken? There was no backup. If it wasn't Squarespace, I was just going to go home. <laughs> it's just right. over. Question from the side of the audience. I'm defeated. Uh, in the back row, please. Yeah. How are you? My name is Sam. Um, I'm a first-time founder. Um, you had mentioned earlier that you didn't have much of a network early on. Yeah. Um, I'm looking to recruit a team right now of engineers yeah. and some people. Um, any advice um, as a first-time founder really trying to recruit when you don't have all the credibility in the world? Oh, man, that's a, that's a really tough one. Um, I mean, this was always the hardest, the hardest thing for me. I, I, I was at an event recently, and there was a founder talking, and he's like, who are your early employees? And he's like, oh, all my friends from school. I'm like, lucky. Like, <laughs> that's cool. Um, and you know, actually, Maryland. I went to University of Maryland. Actually, there were it actually has a good computer science program. But you know, for whatever reason, I didn't keep in touch with some people. And I was, you know, I moved to New York, and there's, you know, not a real guarantee that people are just going to move to New York. Um, advice early on with recruiting. God, I, I, I just, I mean, for me, it was about getting traction in the company before I started adding people on, and so I could, I could show some success there. I will say that something I, I, I didn't want to admit to myself at the time, but actually did help me, is the, um, the investment from, uh, that we got from the two VCs seven years in, Index and Excel. I think that that helped a lot of people who might have been a little bit more skeptical about joining the like my solo little entrepreneurial show, uh, were at least comforted a bit by the fact that these two, you know, well-renowned, you know, Firms with a good reputation were willing to like, yeah, I was a sole founder. We're willing to kind of go into it under the hood and be like, no, this checks out, kind of. I mean, you know, it's an early stage investment, so it's the companies when they're smaller, a bit of their messes. Um, we were certainly a mess. Uh, we still are a mess in some ways, um, but yeah. I, I, so that that validation that validation works. Um, I know. Are you a, like depends on your skill set. I, I was a. Not a programmer, so so I was I was an engineer and a little bit of a designer, so I, I felt like I, yeah, like I could I could have that conversation a little bit more. Um, yeah, again, I haven't I haven't done it for a bit, so yeah. Who, who did you bounce ideas off of? You're a sole founder, so you didn't have anyone to turn to to say, well, what do you think about this, or how about this person? Well, I'm 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 asking. I don't know. I ask everybody what they think if, if they'll listen. So you're crowdsourcing. Yeah, just everyone's my therapist. So yeah, <laughs> it's great. The world is a rabbi. The world is, yeah. <laughs> uh, any questions from here, yeah. gentlemen over here? How's it going? Hi. I'm Ron, uh, CEO of Bowtie. It's uh, also focused on SMB tech. So I'm curious. During that first seven years, you know, uh, investors always say like, these people never want to pay. It's impossible. They're always looking for free. Um, what was your kind of strategies to grinding it out during that period before people knew who you were and, and what you were up to? So, good question. With respect to that free versus paid thing, um, in the first year of Squarespace, 
we actually did have a free plan for like, it might even be less than a year. And because I had heard this like, you know, oh, it's going to be a freemium model and people are going to sign up and it's free and then blah, blah, blah. I think for some businesses that can make sense. For a business like Dropbox, it makes complete sense. You go, you use it, you're out of space, you're buying more, that's it. Like, got it. Um, Squarespace, when, when I looked at our customers, and well, I looked at our users, I should say, because uh, they weren't customers, um, and I looked at the people who were on the free plan and how they were using it, I was like, early on, I was like, whoa, this isn't why I really started this. I didn't really want to compete with like LiveJournal. Like I wanted, you know, this, this person's not upgrading ever. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I kind of was like, look, I, I want to shift it. I, wanna, I want this to be a little bit more professional. Um, and I think that if people value that, they can pay me whatever it was back then, seven bucks a month. You know, and, and I really took that seriously. It was like, if I'm not providing, if they're not willing to pay me anything, like, that's weird, you know? And so I, I wanted to, I wanted to, and we're not expensive. I mean, especially for a small business, I mean, seven, to 10 bucks a month, like, come on. Um, so I actually use that as kind of like the mirror on reality. Like, is this worth anything to people or, or, or not? Um, and so I, I, I think we, we shifted out of the free stuff very quickly. Um, you know, user count goes way down, but paying count goes way up. And at least people know what they're there for. And it helped us focus, you know, what we wanted to, what we wanted to, to go after, so. Um, yeah, I think, I think you should test people's willingness to pay. Who was your first paying customer or user? Uh, Sorry. God, I don't remember. It's probably like one of my friends. They probably like, <laughs> ch they probably like churned in a month. <laughs> okay, that was, was my like, second great. question. Aren't they still around? <laughs> no, I don't know. All right, last question <laughs> from the audience. This is 15 years ago. <laughs> 15 years ago. Uh, right here in the middle, please. Yeah. Thank you so much for this lovely talk. Um, you touched on it briefly for a moment when you said that you're looking to tap into like creatives and musicians yeah. and artists. What are you looking to do in terms of influencer marketing when it comes to Gen Z? Because as we all know, by the next few years, 50% of the population is going to be like entrepreneurs. So mm -hmm. what are you looking to do to tap into that core demographic? Well, I really hope what you're saying comes true because that <laughs> would be like amazing for Squarespace. Um, Look, we, we do a lot. Of, we do a lot. I, I think we, um, you know, we've been active on things like Instagram and trying to figure out, like, if you think about it, like, entrepreneurs are kind of our heroes. And, like, it's like Nike, like, athletes are their heroes. And so we want to get, in, get in front of people and prop them up wherever we can. And I think that there's a lot of people who have, social, um, who have social presence that a lot of people who are trying to get started, they learn from, and they look at their how-tos and the tutorials, and they want to kind of follow what they're doing. Um, and so we're, we're, kind of, uh, we're kind of all over that. I don't have any like one particular model of how kind of uh, we're engaging with influencer marketing. We're trying a bunch of, uh, a bunch of different things, but it's something we, we try and do. But I, I, I really hope 50% of people are going to be <laughs> entrepreneurs. That would be amazing. Thank you very much. For Thanks for listening, and be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or visit the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast homepage to sign up for invites to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this event series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.